see all of you. I hope you had a good week. If you haven't, just keep walking. It'll get better. I want to talk to you this morning from my heart on this subject. Response comes through relationship. Response comes through relationship. So do you have about 40 minutes for me? Okay, I'm going to talk to you out of my heart. Father, I pray for the next few minutes that revelation would be in this house. That, Lord, we would not get in a hurry, but now that we're here in body, let our spirit and soul be in alignment with our body so that we can receive from your table in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody say amen. amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I want you now to imagine that I am sitting at a table and I've asked Landry if she would to come and help me as an example so she knows what I'm asking. I'm sitting at this table and I am at, come around here Landry, I'm at El Toucan. And Landry walks into the restaurant and me and my wife are sitting at the restaurant and you are sitting with us. Every one of you are sitting with us and we're all guests. And Landry walks up, Landry, do what I ask you, please. Please, I beg you, please, I beg you. What are you begging me for? She's begging me for a meal. Say, would you please provide me a meal? Would you please provide me a meal? I, I want you to do it like you mean it. Would you please provide me a meal? I'm begging you. Would you please provide me a I'm meal? I'm begging you, sir. I beg you, I beg you. Now let me just ask you a question. If this was for real, if this young lady literally walked up into L2 can and got down on her knees and begged you for a meal, as a father, how would you feel? Thank you, Landry. As a father, would you be humiliated? Because you take great delight in providing for your children, do you not? If you're a mother, how would you feel? You would think like, my daughter's got a fever. Something is wrong. She knows she doesn't have to beg me for anything. And if you're the guest at the table, you don't know what to do because you're embarrassed and you'll gladly pitch in and say, hey, I'll buy the baby a meal if that's what it's needed. Because it would humiliate you if she's if, if Landry does that in front of God and everybody at El Toucan, you're basically very embarrassed. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, it's foolish for us to say that. And it's foolish for us to even do it. But this is normally what we do when we come to the cross is we beg God. We beg Him. We beg Him for what He has already provided. Now, with that illustration in mind, I want you to go to the book of Matthew in your mind, chapter 7 and verse 11. This is a well-known verse of Scripture. If, an e if you be an evil then, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your heavenly Father Give to those who ask him. It astounds me. It astounds me that as Christians, we think 
that we're more compassionate, more loving, and more giving than our Heavenly Father. It astounds me that we think it's really spiritual for us to walk into a prayer room or to go into our prayer closet and basically beg God to save the lost. We think it makes us look really spiritual when we go before the throne and we get down and we beg God to heal the sick and we beg Him to meet our needs and we think that it makes us look real spiritual. In other words, we don't say this. We would never say it. But our actions prove this is what we think. Our actions actually prove this, that... If God loved people half as much as we did, then God would get off of his throne. He would go seek and save the lost. He would stretch forth his hand to heal. And he would be more attentive to the needs of people if God only loved them as much as we do. Now, of course, we would never say that, but that's really what our actions in prayer are speaking. But it looks better, and it's actually easier on Christians to go and beg God to save the lost, heal the sick, meet the needs, raise the dead, than it is to go and preach the gospel. It actually sounds better, looks better for us to beg God than to go and teach a Bible study. It actually looks like we're more concerned about people when we beg Him to do something than to take the time to go and do good works for people so that we can earn their respect. I'm not getting into the ABCs of how to win somebody, but here's what I found out. I don't present the gospel first. I try to add value to them, and by adding value to their life, I earn their respect. When I earn their respect, then many times they open the door for a relationship. When they open the door for a relationship, then that is when I can share my faith. But it's easier, sounds good, looks better for us to beg God than to actually fulfill Matthew 10 and 8, which Matthew 10 and 8 says simply heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, and cast out demons. Brothers and sisters, the world is not waiting. The world is not waiting on God. The miraculous provisions of salvation and healing have already taken place. As disciples of Jesus Christ, it is not our responsibility to beg a God to do what He's already done. It is now our responsibility to be ambassadors and to carry out the work that is already accomplished. He told us, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received. What did I receive? I received everything that Christ provided for me at atonement. I got it free. He says, give it away free. 
I want to talk about response comes from relationship. Yesterday, I have, I, I spent a lot of time researching the 37 recorded miracles in the gospel. I wanted to make sure that what I was telling you was the absolute truth. I took the time to look every single one of them up in scripture just to make sure that I was right. I'm going to go through a number of these just to try to show you what the Gospels say. The first miracle of Jesus is in John 2, where Jesus turns the water into wine. Did Jesus beg? No. He simply gave a command. He told them, go fill the water pots. Here's the second miracle. It's in John 4. Jesus heals the official son at Capernaum. Does he ask? No. Jesus speaks a word. Verse 50. Go and your son will live. The third miracle is also found in Luke 4. Jesus cast out the devil and the evil spirit in a man. Does he plead? No. Verse 35. He just says, be silent and come out of him. Jesus did all of these miracles, and when he'd done them, the people said, here's verse 36, for with authority, notice, he commands, he doesn't ask, he doesn't beg, he doesn't plead, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Let's go again. The fourth miracle, Luke 4, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Does he ask? No. Verse 39, he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. The fifth miracle, Luke 4, Jesus heals many who are sick of all various diseases. Does he plead? Verse 40, he lays his hands on every one of them and healed them. The sixth miracle, Luke 4, the miraculous catch of the fish. Did he plead? Did he beg? No, he gave a command. What's the command? Verse 4, verse 4 says, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Of the 37 recorded miracles in the Gospels of Jesus Christ, he either spoke it, he commanded it, or he gave an instruction for a miracle to happen. None of the 37 recorded miracles did he ask, did he plead, or did he beg. And we can say, well, that's Jesus. We're not Jesus. Well, then let's go into Acts 3 and 6. Peter and John were not Jesus. But they went to the temple and there was a lame man. They did not ask. They did not plead. They did not beg. They simply said, silver and gold, we don't have. We're not rich guys. But here's what we had. We freely received everything Christ gave us at the cross. We received it. Now we're going to freely give it to you. Stand up and walk. Okay. Today I come to you with all the love in my heart. And I understand that years and years, 30 and 20 and 40 and 60 years of tradition are not washed away overnight. I understand that. I don't expect you to get this in one service. But I do want to tell you what I feel and what I believe. I do not believe that God is a genie that is going to supply you with three granted wishes. 
nor do I believe that God is a vending machine where the currency is your good works and your standards and all of your performance. And it's the currency that you put into the vending machine to get God to respond to you. Everything, ladies and gentlemen, I believe, everything that I see in God's Word, this is very important, everything that I see in God's Word flows out of relationship. The cross is not a vending machine, and your God is not a genie. God's response comes through relationship. Much like fruit organically appears on the branches. Why? Because it's connected to the vine. It's organic. There is no begging. There is no pleading. Unity with Christ. Unity with Christ. Being one with Christ. You know what unity brings? Unity brings joy. You say, how do you know that? Because when two hearts are united together as one in unity, it brings joy. If there's a lot of sadness at a wedding, there's probably something desperately wrong. Because most weddings I've been to, there is a lot of joy. Why? Because it's very few times where two people come together as one and unite. This is why unity is so powerful. Because the fruit of unity is joy. And the reason why there's not a lot of joy in a lot of Christians' lives is because they see God as a vending machine and a genie instead of uniting with Him as one and the joy of fellowship being the fruit of their labor. Are you with me? The reason why, ladies and gentlemen, that the enemy works so hard for you not to pray is because sin and self is what separates the branches from the vine. The reason why distraction comes your way is because sin and self allows your branches to go down into the dust. And it is the job of the vine dresser to lift up the branches out of the dust and out of the dirt and lift them back up and tie them back to the trellis so that those branches will produce. When God proves you, it's not because he's mad at you. It's not because he don't like you. He's pruning you because he wants you to bear more fruit. Because he understands that the fruit will come if it stays connected to the vine. But it can't lie in the dust and in the dirt and wallow in the muck and the mire and produce the fruit that he wants you to produce. So the enemy spends most of his time and energy reminding all of us in ways of which we fall short. Such as, I haven't done enough. I'm not good enough. I screamed at my kids last week. I didn't follow through on that commitment. I know I'm just unworthy. Let me ask you a question. How dirty and how rotten was the prodigal son in Luke 15? He was dirty literally. He was rotten spiritually. He probably came back to the father's house in rags. He didn't have a penny to his name. So the answer to that is he was very dirty. He was very rotten. He was emotionally spent. But guess what? He didn't come back to the father's house based on his worthiness. He came back to the father's house because he knew he had relationship. And the enemy wants to get you to dwell on what you are not, what you haven't done, how unworthy that you are, how sinful that you have been instead of dwelling on the relationship that you have with Christ. 
He wants you, when you sin, to run from the cross. When you sin, God wants you to run to the cross. When you sin, the enemy wants to make you think how unworthy you are. When you sin, God wants to remind you, but you're still my son. And I want your life to bear forth much fruit. Why does God want you to be confident in a relationship with Him? Here's what I believe. is because I believe that all of God's response from the finished work flows through relationship. And when you ever get the, re- the revelation and you get a confident heart and you start believing that God is your Father and you are His Son then that, ladies and gentlemen, is the key to keep the windows of heaven open. But as long as the enemy can get you to dwell in your sin and what you are not doing, then your condemnation now convinces you that God is against you. But there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I have blown it. Yes, I have messed up. But as a son, I come back because of the relationship and I receive forgiveness again, much like the prodigal son did when he simply confessed his sin. Now, I think, and I may be wrong, but I think that most Christians, in fact, I believe that most of you in this house, you really do believe that prayer is a fruitless, frustrating, and there's very little joy in prayer. And that's why if you ask a thousand Christians, should they pray more? A thousand Christians would say yes. If you ask a thousand Christians, why don't they pray more? They're like, well... You know, I've done it and it just don't work. I've asked 90 days, 120 days, and it just doesn't seem like God's really paying attention to me. And I believe that most of you in this room, you're good people, you're going to be saved, but there's very little joy in your relationship. There's very little joy in your prayer. That's why you, that's why you struggle to do it. I'm not, I'm not at any, in any way, I promise you, I'm not shooting arrows at anyone. I'm just talking where we are. Just remember this. No one has ever sinned out of duty. Nobody's ever said, well, it's just my duty to go sin today. The reason why people sin is because they think it's going to bring them delight. To hear a Christian say, well, it's just my duty to pray. How do you think that makes your heavenly father feel? Here are two reasons, and I know you've heard a lot of what I have said, but repetition is the art of learning. So I keep saying it because it's that important, not because I'm not studying for other things. When you come to your father, he wants you to come out of delight because there are two reasons why the children of Israel did not go into the promised land. It's very plain in Scripture. Number one, they did not delight themselves in the Lord their God. And number two, because of their unbelief. God had already told them, he had already told them, the promised land is yours. Did that mean miraculously it landed in their lap? No, because ownership and possession are two different things. But the moment he told them they had it and it was theirs, it was theirs. Now they had to go and possess it. Everything that has happened on the cross 
has already been accomplished. It's already yours. That doesn't mean that God puts it in your lap. It means you now, through faith, go and possess what has already been done. Can I keep going? See, I believe there's another way to pray. I believe there's actually a joyous way to pray that brings heaven's power to earth. There is a way that we can pray with authority. Here's a way. Here's how I'm praying now. Father, I enter into your courts robed in your righteousness. I know that I'm not worthy, but you have made me worthy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father, if there is anything in my heart, my mind, or my spirit that has separated me from you, cleanse me by your blood and wash me. I stand as righteous, not based off of what I've done or my righteousness or how much I've given or how I look on the outward appearance. I stand in your righteousness based off of everything that you did to make me righteous. Therefore, I do not come to beg you for anything, but I have a confident heart that you are a good, good father and you want to bless us with all spiritual blessings. So I thank you for what you have already provided. That's the way that I am praying now. I don't have to muster up, muster up more faith. I just got to muster up more faith. No, I do not believe that. Faith is good, but faith isn't a work. In other words, I got to work to muster up more faith because my faith qualifies me now to receive an answer from God. I do no longer, I no longer believe that. Here's what I now believe. I believe that faith is the belief that takes hold of the answer God has already joyfully provided. I now believe that faith isn't something I do to get God to move. Faith is the confident assurance that He's already done it, and He's not stingy, and He's not angry, and He's not resentful, and He's not mad at me. My faith receives, my faith now, Let's say that, let's just, here's some packages over here. Let's say that these packages are your healing, your blessings. Now, here is what faith does. Faith reaches, and by the way, this is, let's just say this is God's throne. Faith reaches into the supernatural to bring back into the natural what is already mine. In all 34 Miracles in the gospel. Never one time did God have to take a break to manufacture the miracle, go design the miracle, go put the miracle together. In every instance, the miracle happened. How did it happen? Because he obeyed the word. He spoke it. He commanded it. He didn't beg it. He didn't plead it. He didn't hope it was going to happen. Jesus, as a man, reached into his relationship with God and commanded what God had already provided to now come into the physical realm to bless his people. And I want you to understand something. All 37 miracles in the gospel happened before the cross. It all happened before the cross. 
Brothers and sisters, again, I'm not upset with anyone. I'm not mad. I know this is years and years of tradition. This is not typically the way we think. But either forgiveness and healing and blessings are already provided. And if it's not, then when is God going to do it? For us to beg God to save the lost, God just looks at us. He says, preach the gospel I've already provided for their salvation. Please do not. I know I'm saying a lot of what I've already said, but you got to get this. Please understand this. People will not go to hell because of their sin. People will go to hell because they reject the Savior. God has already paid for sins past, present, and future. God has already healed. Do you honestly think, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be ugly, but do you honestly think that Jesus jumps back on the cross and gets whipped every time you need to be healed? I don't think you believe that, but that's what you think. I can't prove this in Scripture, but here's what I believe. I believe heaven is a storehouse And I also believe that if I want your vehicle, I can't take my key to get into your vehicle. I got to have your key to get into your vehicle. And I think we've been trying to get into heaven's storehouse any way we want to. And it don't work that way. There's a key. And it's called faith. But faith is not a work. Faith is a belief. Anytime you see the word faith, change it out for belief. Okay. When the man of authority came to Jesus, notice this, there's levels of faith and I can't get into that. That's not my message. But this man operated in the highest level of faith. He came to Jesus and he said, my son is sick. If you'll come to my house, he says, if you'll just speak the word. That's what he said. He didn't ask him to come to his house. He said, you'll just speak the word. And, and, And notice what he said, because I'm a man under authority. He understood how authority worked. He believed that God was in authority. And he believed faith is a belief. He believed because he understood authority. He believed that all Jesus had to do was speak. And because he knew his words carried authority, he believed Jesus' words carried authority. He said, I don't need you to come to my house, sir. I just need you to speak. And God just kind of shook his head and said, I ain't seen faith like this in all of Israel. He knew he didn't have to beg him. Why? Because nobody had to beg him in a place of authority to carry out his mission. His general told him, he told the others, and they carried it out. There was no begging. There was no pleading. There was a command given. Does this make sense? Can I keep going? So, so I, again, I understand there's a lot of tradition and, and, and beliefs that we got to muddle through to get here. But here's what I believe. God has already provided healing, forgiveness, finances, freedom, and power. All of it's already been provided. Everything you already need. So we should pray from a place of victory, not trying to get the victory. God's throne is a place, the Bible tells us, of grace, mercy, and help for you. So when I feel disqualified, what do I do? I pray for His grace. 
Because everything, ladies and gentlemen, every gift that you get comes through His grace. It's all by His grace. So when I feel disqualified, I pray for God's grace. When I feel like I ain't good enough, I pray for God's grace. When I feel like I'm losing hope, I pray for His grace. When I am tempted to doubt that God is for me, I pray for His grace. And when I need a miracle, I pray for His grace. My brothers and sisters, we qualify for everything Jesus suffered, died, and conquered to purchase for us. When we feel unworthy, we shouldn't run from Him. We should run to Him. Why? Because we're sons. We should come boldly and confidently into the throne. Not because of our own merit or because we deserve it, but solely because I've been clothed in His righteousness. We are fully reconciled to God by His blood. And so now I play, I pray from a place of victory. Okay, I laid that foundation to now tell you this. So, Brother Neelan, what are you saying? Is prayer important? Yes, prayer is important. Okay, here's where I need you to wake up. You ready? When Jesus prayed those hours before His crucifixion, Again, I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm just wanting you to think. I'm, I'm not giving you, just wanting you to think about something. When Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, I'm going to ask you a sincere question. Do you think that he was begging God to save Israel? The truth is Israel had already rejected him. Why would he beg God to do something he knew wasn't going to happen? He had already come to Israel and stood and said, Israel, Israel, how many times would I gather you as a, ch as a chicken or a, a hen doth gather her brew and you would not? So he already knew it wasn't going to happen. Why would he beg God to do something he already knew wasn't going to happen? Okay? Now, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me ask you this. Was he pleading to God to move in his finances? Probably not, because the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, here's what it says, though he was rich... Yet for your sakes, he became poor. So Jesus was not at all upon the earth worried about money. That was absolutely his last concern. Heaven was his throne. I mean, your God is rich. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the silver and the gold belong to him. So money was not his concern. Do you think God was asking? You think Jesus was asking for revival? God give, 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 give God Jerusalem revival? Probably not. Why? Because he had already preached the gospel and those that received the gospel came to him gladly. Are you still with me? Was Jesus doing warfare against the devil when he was praying all these hours? Probably not. Why? Because numerous scriptures tell us Jesus had all power over the devils. He had already rebuked the spirits and cast them out. Jesus had kicked the devil out of heaven and he cast him out on earth. Why was he afraid of the devil? Was he doing spiritual warfare? I don't think so. Because you can look at it two ways. And I didn't even need to get into this. I told myself I wasn't going to get into this. And here I am getting into it. You can look at it both ways. You can look at it as the devil may have wanted Jesus to go to the cross. If he wanted him to go to the cross, then why would he hinder him from going? And if he didn't want him to go to the cross, the devil would be trying to stop him from going. So both ways, ladies and gentlemen, when I look at, the, at, the, at that verse of Scripture in Matthew 26, it, it never talks about the devil. Never talks about Jerusalem and never talks about his finances. We're fixing to get into the heart of this. Was Jesus praying to be forgiven of sins? No, because we knew as flesh he never sinned. He never had an addiction. 
Now, I'm not telling you that you can't pray for these things, but I don't believe that's how Jesus spent his time in prayer. Here's what I believe that prayer was all about when Jesus spent perhaps three hours in prayer. Number one, Jesus prayed to know the will of God. Number two, Jesus prayed to overcome temptation. Number three, Jesus prayed to surrender his will to God's purposes. Here's now how I see prayer. Are y'all with me? I believe prayer is where Jesus conquered his flesh so his life could produce fruit. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus did not do spiritual warfare. He let the fruit of his life defeat Satan. And this right here is called a tree in Acts over three different times. And it's also called a tree in the book of Mark. This is the tree that bear all nine fruit of the spirit. God did not defeat Satan in prayer, doing spiritual warfare. God defeated Satan by allowing his flesh to hang on a cross and him exhibiting enough self-control that he didn't call down legions of angels to strike all those who had crucified him. Please, I'm asking you, please stay with me. Let's go a little bit deeper. It's important to notice this, please. In any time that God entered into a covenant with man, some form of flesh was cut off. Now, this is where I need you to engage your mind. In the, in the, in the Noah covenant, in the covenant of Noah, there was only eight people that were saved. All the other flesh was cut off. Do you agree? In the Abrahamic covenant, the foreskin of a male, it's called circumcision, was cut off. And that meant you were in the commonwealth of Israel and you were saved if the foreskin of a male was cut off and everybody in his household was saved. That was salvation. But there was a cutting away of flesh. That is the Abrahamic covenant. In the Mosaic covenant or the covenant that Moses, God made with Moses, the flesh of an animal had to be cut. And blood was shed. Are you still with me? Okay. Here's the revelation that I want you to see. In the new covenant, God pruned or cut off Jesus' flesh. Why? So that the Spirit could be released. Here's, here's where I'm coming to, ladies and gentlemen. What God pruned... And his only son was literally his whole body of flesh. Because the, the spirit saved more people after his death than it ever did before his death. Because Jesus as flesh was limited. He could only be at one place at one time. But when God pruned Jesus' flesh, his spirit has been poured out upon billions and billions of people have received the spirit all because Jesus went to the cross and submitted to God's will. Here's what I now believe about prayer. I now believe about prayer. It is not about begging. It is not about asking. It is about not pleading. I believe that prayer is daily going and allowing your flesh and your will to surrender to God's will. I want this to come up on the screen, please. Prayer is not, is not forcing a reluctant God to do something he doesn't want to do.
Prayer is surrender. Prayer is keeping us a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And prayer, ladies and gentlemen, is where we receive the mind of God. And in public is where we carry out the will of God. Think of it this way. I'm about, to, I'm about done. Think of it this way. A coach tells a quarterback the play. You don't hear it. What you see is that team executing what the coach told the quarterback to do. You see it in public, but it was spoken in private. What God wants to do, he wants you to understand that as disciples and ambassadors, you are to carry out his will on the earth. The reason why that God is not going to save anyone, heal anyone, do any of that is because he's already done it. Now, as ambassadors and disciples, he said, you preach the gospel. You tell your story. You witness about my goodness. You heal the sick. You cast out demons. How can I do that? I do that when I stay surrendered and united with Christ. I am in him and he is in me. And daily I go here to make sure my flesh responds to his spirit so that what I hear in private, I go out in public and I look like a winner every time. Can y'all stay with me a few more minutes? Okay, if you go to the book of Luke chapter 4, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says there were many widows at the time of Elijah. But I only gave one word to Elijah to go to the widow of Zarephath. He didn't go to all the other widows. Why? Because that widow was ready to receive. And because she was ready to receive, she got the miracle, though there were a lot of other widows in Zarephath that didn't get it. Here's what he keeps saying. There was a lot of lepers in the time of Elisha, but he only went to Naaman. Why? Because Naaman was ready to receive. If you want to look like a winner every time, you get in private and let God tell you his will. And then you go in public and you just do what he's told you. Because not everybody's ready to receive. And the person may not be ready today, but they're ready tomorrow. Think of the prodigal son. There was many days he wasn't ready. But there came a day when he was ready. And when he got ready, he received. Did the father have to go out and get a fatted calf, get a robe, get shoes, get a ring? No, he received what was already there. God says, you're my son. I'm giving you my authority. I'm giving you my status. I'm giving you my righteousness. I'm giving you my name. I'm giving you everything you need. Why? Because you're worthy? No, because you're my son. Response comes out of relationship. Give you another example. The other day we had a funeral in here. This family, the Kendall family, decided in private what they wanted to do in public. They shared it with me. I put it down on a sheet of paper. I got over there and I brought some people around me. And I said, okay, based off of what this family wants and what they've told me, um, Marissa, you're going to sing first. Then after you sing, Sister June's going to sing. Then the obituary, Brother Norman. Then after the obituary, Sister June's going to sing. And then after Sister June sings, then I'm going to get up and speak. And I let them all know what was going to happen. I didn't get up here and let the audience know. 
I told them over there, about six around me in private, and then the audience just saw what they already knew, what had already been decided. And it just played out in front of them. But it was already decided. See, see, a, a, a football team works all week in practice, and you don't see the practice. All you go is to see 60 minutes of them playing ball. God's not concerned about everybody seeing you in private. That's why he says, go to your closet. And when you get in private and you fellowship with me, I'm going to tell you my will. And then when you step out of the closet, then you just go perform what I've already told you. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm done. Here's what I want to remind you. Number one, prayer is not begging for something to be done. Prayer is receiving what's already been given. Prayer is for us to receive the mind of God for that day. And then we carry it out. There's a man in here. In fact, I'm going to tell you who it is. It's Nathan Areno. Nathan Areno went to a church, and I'm not going to call any names, but Nathan Areno went to a church that the pastor didn't think that you were spiritual unless you prayed hard enough to vomit. Nathan, am I telling the truth? He didn't think you prayed hard enough until you went into convulsions. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you something. That borderline's occultic. Because it goes against everything that God wants for you. He says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. God never wants you to get down here and beg him. It humiliates him as a father. Just like I would be humiliated if Molly walked into El Toucan and begged me to feed her. It would humiliate me because I would look at her and I said, girl, you must have lost your mind. I've been taking care of you before you were ever even born. You must have a high fever to come in here begging me like that. There's never been a time that I haven't taken care of you. Now, you say, okay, pastor, I bought everything you say. But what happens when God don't answer immediately? Let me ask you a question. Do you give a four-year-old a Kawasaki 150? Let me ask you another question. Has mama ever been cooking and she was cooking and you were hungry and you said, mama, I'm hungry. And she said, you're going to have to wait a minute. For God to tell you, you got to wait a minute doesn't mean he's not going to grant your request. It may mean he's using that to prune your flesh. See, See, I understand that how most people think, well, this is my cross to bear. This is just my cross to bear. God already bore your cross. The cross is not about you having to bear this. The cross is all about you surrendering to the will of God. So you can carry out in public as an ambassador of Christ, as his hands and feet, what he shared with you in private. You carry it out in public. What did Jesus do? Many, many scholars think that Jesus prayed three hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did Jesus do in that Garden of Gethsemane? His whole prayer time, for the most part, was saying, God, don't lead me into temptation so that I don't allow this difficult circumstance to keep me from following your will. 
because the will of God was for Jesus to go to the cross. And as a man, y'all got to get this, he was both God and man. But as a man, he knew what was coming and he didn't want to go. Your flesh, ladies and gentlemen, I know we talk a lot about the devil, but the devil was defeated. Jesus didn't do spiritual warfare in prayer. He was already defeated. You know what the warfare is? It's wrestling your flesh down to the will of God. Why? Because I know we don't like to say this, and I know we don't even like to believe this, but sweetheart, you want to be your own God. And here's what prayer is, and I'm done. Prayer is surrendering your will to his will. What is worship? Then worship is keeping him in his rightful place. I worship him as God and keep him on the throne. And I pray to surrender to my flesh because my flesh wants to get on the throne. So I don't pray to beg God. I pray to keep my flesh where it needs to be. And I worship to remind myself every day he's God and I'm not. But you know why we like to play God? It's because I work real hard. I can get what I need myself. Bless God. I don't need nobody else. You know what that is? That's playing God. Because you don't want to humble yourself and say, as the old song goes, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Not every three days, but every hour. I need you. Do you think for one minute that your Heavenly Father wants you to come to prayer? It's my duty. Think he wants to come? You, he thinks, you think He wants you to come to church because it's my duty? What joy is that? There's no joy in that. Joy comes in unity. The fruit of joy comes through unity. Jesus produced all nine fruit of the Spirit on the cross. That's how He overcame Satan. I can prove it, but I'm not going to do it right now. So what do I want you to do? Well, you don't have to do anything. But what I'd like for you to do is think about what was presented to you this morning so that you start praying with confidence. See, most of, most of people's prayer is all for themselves. What Jesus did was all for others. Even going to the cross was for others. He didn't need forgiveness of sins. He didn't need to be healed. He didn't need to be blessed. He didn't need finances. He had it all. He didn't go to the cross for himself. Notice, notice this. I, two things he says love God love people you're not even in there you're not even mentioned love God love people why because when I surrender to God and I love people I'm going to get the joy of just doing what he told me to do because now I'm giving you a word now I'm encouraging you and all those things that I got from heaven just brings me great joy and there's no amount of money that could buy that Here's what we say. Well, I've done everything else I know to do, so I guess I'll pray now. And prayer becomes our last resort. Why? Because we see it as a duty. A drudgery. 
We don't see it as relationship. Here's how I'm praying now when I wake up. Father, I, I, I told him this morning, I've just been tired lately. I just told him this morning, I said, God, I'm tired. I'm just tired. I don't feel saved. I don't feel righteous. But I know I'm your son, and I know that you love me. I know that you're for me. I know that you're going to anoint me this morning. I just know you're with me. It doesn't matter how I feel. Carnal Christians base everything off of the five senses. And it doesn't mean you're lost. It just means you tap into how you feel more than your faith and what you know. This is why in Romans 12 and 2, he wants you to transform your mind. How? By getting this word in it so you no longer just base, oh, I, oh, I feel a tingle. Oh, I feel a goosebump. I hadn't felt any tingles or any goosebump, but I'm, I know I'm saved. I know I'm his son. I know everything he's got is mine. And if I have to wait a while, it's only because he knows something down the road that I don't know. It's not because he's not good. Do you receive his word this morning? Would you stand? Kaylee, I want you and your team to come up. I want us to sing Beautiful Jesus again. As they're coming, I'm, I'm really trying to stop. But see, the reason why so many of you don't have joy because you see him as a genie and as a vended machine and he hadn't granted your three wishes. And after everything you've done, after the thousands of dollars you've given to this church and you made sure you wore long sleeves and long dresses and that's fine, I'm all about modesty. After you taught 30 years of Sunday school, after you've given all of your goods and God still hadn't done what you thought he should do. I'm just sorry. Nothing comes your way because of your righteousness. Sorry. Because in God's eyes, that's self-righteous. It all comes based off a relationship. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I that lives. <laughs> but it's Christ that lives in me. And one day, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Call Nathan now. Call him right now. I looked at my watch and it was 4.59. I've told you this story before. Nathan answered the phone and he started laughing. I said, Why are you laughing? He said, Because I told the Holy Spirit X, Y, Z. And if it is true, have Pastor Wayne call me before 5 o'clock. I called him at 4.59. Are you saying you're spiritual? Nope. I'm not saying I'm spiritual at all. All I'm saying is... I found out in private what God wanted to do in public that day. That's all. Huh. Oh, well, you're real spiritual. You just think that because you don't really know me. But if you really knew me, you might lay your hands on your own head. Because I'm really not. I'm really not that spiritual.
But I'm learning. I'm learning. And I just want to share with you. You say, Pastor, if this is true, how come I didn't hear this 30 years ago? I, I, I really don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't. I'm no guru. I'm nothing special. I don't claim to be anything special. I just know a lot of things wasn't working. And I didn't like the results I was getting. So I started digging for myself. And I didn't let man's traditions get in my way. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate all the kind words that you guys say to me. Thank you for that. It's life to my spirit. And I really do. Thank you for your text. I do. Thank you. Please keep it coming. But I'm going to tell you something. I got great joy already. Because I gave you what he told me in private. And I got great joy today. Because I've done the will of the Father. So money can't buy how I feel right now. That's the joy. When you love God and love others, you get joy in the middle. I love you. Would you bow your head? Father, I understand 20, 30, 40, 50 years of tradition is not washed away in one single 45-minute message. I get it. I know it. Lord, I do pray that you would let, let this seed let it go into fertile soil. Lord, let it be watered. And in due season, let it bear forth much fruit so that your people, they can, Lord, see the joy of their salvation be restored. That all of these heavy burdens and all of this begging and pleading is not, Lord, what you want for your sons and daughters. Give us revelation in this house to see what prayer is really about. It's really all about our flesh surrendering to your will. It's all really about us hearing in private what you want to say and do in public. And that we carry it out as your sons and daughters, your disciples, your ambassadors. So let revelation be in this house. In Jesus' name.